Zach Bush is an absolutely revolutionary medical doctor. He has a wealth of knowledge on so many subjects, including life, death, living with a full and blissful existence. And in this podcast, you're going to learn a lot of things, but what you're going to learn about the sacred element of water is going to blow your mind. So enjoy this podcast with Dr. Zach Bush. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have mud water. Now, mud water, if you're not aware of what this is, has become a staple of my morning ritual. It is a combination of some of the best ingredients on the planet. It's got masala chai. It's got cacao, lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps mushrooms, chaga mushrooms, turmeric, cinnamon. It is just packed with everything that you want to put in your body to nourish and support this kind of ramp up for the day. Now, it's got one-seventh the amount of caffeine as coffee. And that's really, as I've talked about in my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, you don't want to start the morning with a bunch of caffeine. Really, you don't. That's for something a little bit later on in the day. But mud water has just the right amount. And the way I like to mud water is I mix a little mud water, I mix a little butter, I mix a little protein, and then sometimes some cashew butter, and I blend it up, and I have this delicious morning drink that I look forward to every single day. And sometimes I'll go back for a second mud water because it just tastes so good. And they didn't bother with putting a bunch of extra sweeteners in there, so you can sweeten it as you like. Maybe you're comfortable with real sugar. Maybe you want stevia. Maybe you want xylitol. Maybe you want monk fruit. Whatever it is, they leave it up to you, which I really appreciate, so they don't overdo it. It's just a phenomenal product, and they really did that by focusing on just creating the very best thing and absolutely doubling down on that very best thing. So I encourage you guys to give it a try. Their customer service is phenomenal. Their ownership is amazing. I know those guys over there. And it's just a great product and a great company. So I highly recommend it. So check it out, mudwater.com slash amp. Now you spell mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash amp. And if you go to that URL, you'll save $5 off on every mud water purchase. Next up, we have Inside Tracker. So, as many of you know, I founded a company called Onnit based upon total human optimization. And so many of the tools that we have are beneficial to bring you to an optimal state of performance. But one of the challenges with that is sometimes you need quantification. Sometimes you need to understand what specifically you need to work on. And to do that, you need some support. And one of the best services to come about is called Inside Tracker. Our good friend Andrew Huberman backs them and supports them. They really go through a comprehensive analysis of not only your blood work, but your lifestyle and everything that's going on to give you a clear view and some recommendations on how to bring you to an optimal state of performance. So I encourage you guys to check it out it was founded by a bunch of top leading scientists in aging, genetics, biometrics. They have algorithms that analyze your body's data. There's some really strong science-backed recommendations for your diet, lifestyle changes. It's really customized, bespoke advice and can be really valuable. So if you're interested, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com backslash amp once again inside tracker.com slash amp 
for 25% off. And finally, we have Onnit. And what I want to talk to you about with Onnit today is just how much I've been loving Alpha Brain Instant lately. So typically, I've just been using Alpha Brain Instant for podcasts and for special events, but I've been finding myself realizing that my entire day is better when I take Alpha Brain. And I used to think like, oh, maybe it's because I had a podcast and that energized me. And then I finally realized like, well, yeah, the podcast was great because I had a very focused conversation, but it's also the fact that that's what got me taking Alpha Brain Instant that day. And that is actually making a significant difference. And look, I should have probably recognized this a little bit earlier, you know? I mean, shit, I was a major part of inventing (laughs) Alpha Brain, you know, like for me not to even really realize what a significant difference it's making for me overall, even when I don't have something important. It was pretty powerful for me to recognize that. This is now something, I don't do it every single day, but it's not just on days where I have podcasts and recordings and important writing stretches. I'm using it more frequently and I'm really enjoying just how it's making me feel overall, period. Just my brain seems to fire better. I have more energy. That person that texts me, I'm more likely to text them back because I have that energy and make those calls that I, in between the things, I just, I just feel more alive, more alert. It's helping my mood, you know, in interesting, positive ways as well. And uh, so this is kind of a rediscovery of something for me that I've been familiar with for shit, almost 11 years now. And just thought I would share that. Also, the Alpha Brain Instant flavors are bomb, and there's so many of them now. So keep a lookout for that. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey if you're interested in checking out Alpha Brain Instant and saving 10% off of everything. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Zach Bush. Zach, we just listened to a, a really powerful poem that uh, came to me in my last ayahuasca journey and uh it gets me man it gets me as read by by caitlin and it's channeling the voice of the mother and it's uh you know you're someone who's really dedicated so much your life to restoring the mother and the awareness of what she's able to bring and when i say the mother i mean earth (laughs) you know and and now is the time you know now is the time people people need to remember they need to remember their mother yes it's an amazing realization that there's not a need for new thought or new innovation for this new paradigm to unfold it is that remembering that you're talking about and all of the knowledge field has always been there the universe is complete in its knowledge field and this relatively ethereal concept of human consciousness is not a thing like a lot like science is not a thing right and science has been thrown around a lot in the last couple of years as if it's like some sort of truth you know bank science is a process of right. observing and consciousness i think is the same thing where it's not a a group of data that we can access it's not a, a library of information that the library of information is beyond consciousness it's in the, in the fabric of the universe there and the consciousness is simply the lens that we look through, just as science might be the lens that we look through to understand the world that we live within or who we are, why we're here, where we're going. In the process of turning science from the, the technique of asking questions and testing skeptically all of the hypotheses, which is, which is what science is, when that became a religion where the majority opinion the consensus opinion was now dogma 
which has happened really recently, it's lost the very essence of itself, very much like religion when it assumes dogma and it gets rigid and it gets fixed, loses its way as a path to God. Science loses its way as a path to truth when it forgets the roots from whence it came. Science is here to find truth at all cost. Religion is here to find God at all cost. Fuck who does it. Like, and if we forget that, we're in a dire situation. Yeah, I think that's the schism that's happened in the psyche of humanity in a lot of ways is we have, through our dependence on human intellect, become agents of resistance. Yeah. <laughs> we resist change, which is not in line with the mathematics of the universe, which is inherently change. <laughs> and so we struggle at every level of our society because we keep this very firm hand on the effort towards control, the effort towards reducing change. And we do that through things like, you know, sovereign, the concept of sovereignty shifting to dominion or ownership. Mm -hmm. Sovereignty is a state of abundance, you know, a sovereign soul is always taken care of by the universe, you know, and uh, any indigenous people that is, you know, practicing their thousands and thousands of years of traditional life experience, they wake up in the morning, they walk out into the forest and they collect what they'll have that day. There's no refrigerator, nor storage bins, no need for, because the forest will provide tomorrow again, as it has for 40,000 years in the Amazon. And so that's sovereignty, I believe. And when we mistook dominion or ownership for sovereignty and we b began to own things we lost the providence of nature yeah and that scarcity mentality now echoes through all layers of our society and science i believe is very similar to that that as soon as we shift away from you know the open curiosity of the practice of science towards one of fear of change, we lose our capacity to ask the right questions. Yeah. And we start to become slow to morph and change our, our path. And I, and I would say that there's a predictable pattern to this because while we've certainly, in, in my lifetime, the last two years has been an extraordinary example of scientific dogma, like rigidity that I couldn't have imagined. But that's echoed through history many times. You know, 2,000 years ago, Pythagoras and these Greeks, you know, came up with some new math that demonstrated that, oh my God, the, the planet is not flat. The planet is actually a sphere. It was so disruptive to science that 2,000 years later, we still have a lot of debate. We have, you know, flat Earth society still very active in holding that scientific belief that it's, it is flat, you know? And so we have these, these worlds those, you know, those, coming those, at each other. That's, that's going to be a very losing proposition here <laughs> as we start to stratospherically and cosmically explore and everybody can look at the curvature for their own eyes. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to hold on to that one. But, but it's a good example of you know the resistance to change. Yeah, you know? totally. And it's interesting that the concept of the firmament, the heavens above earth on a flat earth, was not just a scientific belief system, it was a religious belief system. Yep. So when Pythagoras came along, it was disruptive to Roman gods and everything right. else of like, wait, like, how, why aren't we falling off the planet? Like, no, no, it made no sense spiritually. And then, you know, fast forward 1400 years and Galileo and his colleagues create the first telescopes there. 
And suddenly in 1400, we have a very disruptive discovery of the earth is not still in space. And mm -hmm. we thought that the firmament was spinning around us to find out we were spinning around the sun and the sun was swirling through a massive galaxy and billions of galaxies ultimately so disruptive to science. And I think when you have those disruptive paradigm shifting discoveries, it leads to a clamping down of the narrative, the old narrative, because of the resistance to change that's natural to the scarcity mindset of humans. Yeah. And so I think we're just in another one of those moments. And interestingly, it, this is biased because of my background, but I believe that the revolution that just happened in 2008-10 that is fundamentally challenging our spirituality and our awareness of the science level is their discovery that the human cell is not at the center of human health. And it, it's so hard to wrap your head around this because we've been studying for hundreds of years disease in the human body, you know, under microscopes, autopsies, everything else, to understand cardiovascular disease, cancer, and the like. And we had all these presumptions that this was a human cell phenomenon. With the the revolution not of the telescope this time, but of the genomics and genetic sequencing coming out in the late 1990s, accelerating into the early 2000s, by 2010, we had realized, oh my God, we're completely wrong about the human immune system. We're completely wrong about human biology as it functions as a regenerative process because at the center of human health is actually a vast ecosystem of invisible microbes, viruses, parasites, protozoa, archaea, these incredibly rich ecosystem within us. Mm. And that's what determines not only your health, but literally who do you emerge as today. Yeah, it's like the the forest is inexorable from, I mean, the tree is inexorable from the forest, you know, and it, it, it requires the entire ecosystem. It requires everything to actually exist and survive in the way and thrive in the way that it can. Now you can take a tree out of a forest and plant it in a little thing in a park somewhere and water it the right way and fertilize it with your own stuff, but it's never going to thrive like a tree in the forest, it belongs as a part of that. And nor is a human, when you isolate each variable and try to throw this chemical at it or throw this thing at each different cell, sure, all right, and it's gonna do something, but it's not gonna thrive like it will when it's in a healthy ecosystem where the entirety of the being is treated. And not only the entirety of all of our cells, all of our trillions of cells, but us as billions of cells on a single organism called earth and how we're all working together and how we're all inexorable from the collective field the field of the environment whether it's toxins or energy or whatever or connection you know the heart fields that we're encountering all of these things that are on the frontier of quote science now but have been felt and known for a long time and this is this is a massive revolution and a lot of people who've built themselves citadels in academia are going to resist this, as they always did. In my book, Own the Day, I cited a study that upon the death or retirement, and particularly the, the death of the dominant scientific figure in a particular field, right after that, then all kinds of new studies emerge. And they measure this with citations, citations for different you know, alternate theories. Like It's like there's a, a clamping down as long as there's the dominant paradigm and the dominant figure of that paradigm. And then when that, when that figure is removed, there's this flourishing. It's like a forest fire comes and now a flourishing of new growth of information and ideas and hypotheses. But the pressure to keep things as they are is strong and it's in the face of the inevitable truth 
of seeing ourselves as interconnected beings. Yeah. Yeah, that that phenomenon in academia is, you know, ripples through corporate world and the like as well, I think. <clears throat> but uh I think as we start to look at you know the the phenomenon of change or the resistance to it in science, we can look to you know natural systems to understand you know what the potential is. Like when we start to embrace the concept of adaptation at every level, constant adaptation, it will change the way we ask questions for sure. You know, because we have for too long been focused on trying to find unchanging truths in biology. Mm. And biology just doesn't work that way. And we have to hurry up and get to that level of understanding of we have to surrender the belief that there are fixed behaviors in biology. In physics, there are truths. I think physics is really, it's been said there's only two pure sciences on the planet, philosophy and physics. But since physics was based on philosophy coming out of the Greeks, there's only one original clean science, which was philosophy. And what I think has happened is we lost track of the philosophy that shaped the truths of physics when we started to become so biologically focused in our scientific research. Mm. And so we became so enamored with the microscope and disease mechanisms and you know the public health statistics and all of this that we, over the last 200 years, completely lost track of philosophy. And you know, this really happened in spades in 1910 with the Flexner Report, which was you know, commissioned by Rockefeller. Rockefeller oil and gas magnate uh, was recognizing that small molecule chemistry coming out of oil and gas uh, base uh, products were exponentially more profitable than oil and gas as a fuel. And so the chemical industry moving into the pharmaceutical industry in the early 1900s was a boon. And 1910, he had Flexner, a doc out of one of the Ivy League schools, write a report that basically was designed to demonize or, you know, discredit homeopathy, herbalism, you know, a traditional energy medicines, you know, everything. And so the Flexner Report basically said, this is all witchcraft, it's all old, it's, you know, not scientific. That's a, that's a, that's a, play, that. that's a play from an old playbook. Yeah. That playbook's been around for a long time. <laughs> yeah, some other examples. Yeah, I mean, this this repression of the innate knowledge of our energetics and how the plant and animal kingdom and what we eat and what we, and the herbs we have, these wisdom traditions were all labeled as witchcraft and yeah. burned and and stunted in so many ways. It's like it's such a very interesting paradigm that the scarcity it, it goes back to the scarcity mindset because if you're not in scarcity mindset, even Rockefeller, like, are you not going to get rich enough from your oil and gas? Like, do you, you need more? Yeah. Can, can someone give you a fucking hug? <laughs> yeah. You know, like you really need to play the you need to play the game this ruthless. Yeah. It's it's wild, but it's this insatiable hunger from this insatiable scarcity, this hungry ghost that everybody's trying to feed. And same with religions, like, okay, like Catholics, y'all are killing it. You know, you're really doing good. Do you really need to burn everybody who's challenging you? Really? You think that's necessary? Like it's fucking why go to that extreme? It's it's like it's wild how we'll just take things. It'll just feed and feed and feed on itself. And then we'll take things to this extreme. Like, whoa, everybody, fucking chill out. Farm big pharma. Are you do you not have enough profits? 
y'all not good you need to play that you need to play the game ruthless like relax <laughs> yeah. it's wild yeah I, I, and it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels until we step back maybe a couple thousand years or ten thousand years or something like that and look at the rise and fall of empires you know the largest by far as far as control of total earth control and everything else with the roman empire yeah. it was staggering the size the scale the duration of that roman empire phenomenal it collapsed you know ultimately uh, almost in exactly the same way that a tumor uh, ends up dying in a body uh, it outstrips its supply chain it reaches yeah. further and further out for you know the, the wealth and resources necessary to maintain this extremely energetically demanding cancer or tumor and when the supply chains finally fail the center of the tumor rots very quickly and then it, an inflammatory system starts and the whole thing collapses and so the cancer of empire is really a predictable pattern and when you look at what would shape that it's not only scarcity but it's this stuck belief of the the patriarchy and what i mean by that is really this masculine archetype which is goal-oriented whereas the feminine archetype is process-oriented mm -hmm. and loses all concept of necessity for goals because with the right process, everything grows, everything flourishes, right. nurture is inherent. But with these short-sighted, goal-oriented, masculine archetype behaviors that have been really unopposed in human history, at least of any memory that we have, we see these patterns of dominion form, empire build, empire fall, empire spread the as soon as the dominant falls just like in academia suddenly see a bunch of new mm -hmm. empires attempt to to get this the and over the next couple hundred years one will rise as dominant again and you see this pattern over and over again and that has been prophesied by many indigenous peoples you know the mayans included but i was recently down in ecuador with the achuar and uh, they have a beautiful prophecy about this time that we're in right now, which I think really speaks to the pattern that we're seeing, which is that the bird of humanity has been flying on one wing since its beginning, mm. the, the masculine wing. And for that, it has been flying in circles. And in this period that we're in, 2012 forward, the feminine wing will begin to unfold. In the years to come, for the first time, the bird of humanity will fly straight. Mm. Not just every time I speak it, it gives me goosebumps. It's just like this deep resonance of truth within me. And so when we look at the powers that be, the whether it be the pharmaceutical company or this kind of new weird mix of military medical complex and weird mix actually of military medical macro macroeconomic yeah. <laughs> control, you know, it's like this weird blending now of the biggest energies on the planet, which you know, really are, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, put this in scale, it's important actually, the the pharmaceutical industry, uh, obviously is the, the vast majority of income to the healthcare system today. And that's in the US is around 3.8, 3.9 trillion dollars a year. Our entire defense budget in the United States is like 680 billion. So we're like five times bigger in the pharmaceutical industry than the entire military complex. Yeah, and, so and then you go down to the education budget and we're talking like, millions you can hold in your hand yeah yeah smattering and so you take that huge economic driver it's an energy right it's an economic energy is this this pharmaceutical disease management you know model and then you marry that to a military kind of concept of enforcement or whatever unfolds and then you marry that with 
the economics that we've seen, $4 trillion of quantitative easing, which is a fancy statement for printing money from nothing. <laughs> yeah. And so $4 trillion from the Fed in less than you know 14 months. Which all matriculates up to the top, which is what we've seen. Billionaires yeah. getting more billionaire-ish. Yeah. yeah, we see the consolidation of wealth. We see 150 million new families in poverty in just the first six months of 2020. Uh, it's probably closer to 300 million new families in poverty over the, over the last two years now globally. So the consolidation of wealth through these mechanisms is a very old pattern, you know? Yeah. And it's easy to look at that and be like, that is insurmountable. Like, what is anybody going to do to create an alternative, alternative narrative, reality, future? And the answer is everything that's been impossible before is about to become possible because that wing is unfolding. That's, that is the beautiful, optimistic way to put it. And all of the great thinkers that I know, yourself, Charles Eisenstein, Daniel Schmachtenberger, all are very aware of the dire condition of where we're at right now, but are all very optimistic because of this force that we all feel is unseen, unaccounted for, unquantifiable. It's as we were talking about earlier, the, this patriarchal mindset is ready for people amassing in the streets with guns. It's ready for combat. It's ready for conflict. It's ready for the next, you know, up and coming, chomping at the bid empire to try and seize the throne. It's ready to defend against that, but it's not ready for the awakening of the feminine within, within themselves, within you know, actual women. I mean, I think when we talk about the feminine, we have to be aware that this is happening in men too. Critically. You know, the wing, the wing, we're both supposed to have wings, both wings. Yes. It's not just like, okay, women fly this side and men fly this side. No, the masculine and feminine are supposed to rise within us, open our hearts, allow us to see. And, and both, and yeah, you can have one dominant side and proclivity as an individual, as, as we, many of us do. But nonetheless, it's, this is a universal phenomenon. And this is what is going to open up consciousness and this is the thing that's underestimated you know and and i think that's why despite all of the dire looking conditions in the world and the way that we can see trends going we have hope i have hope mm -hmm. you have hope charles has hope daniel has hope like we really believe that there's something that's unaccounted for and you just can't look at it in the same way that you've looked at everything else yeah i think that's that's spot on and I think that I've gone through a massive reawakening this year, uh, as I would have told you a year ago, probably too. Like it's been relentless for the last dozen years in me where I, as soon as I think I'm done deconstructing <laughs> and you say yes again to the universe, it's very eager to take you down yeah. one, one more notch until you can really flourish even at a higher level than you thought. So going through that process again this year, it actually really came down to that masculine feminine within and realizing through you know work around the course of miracles things like that that we have for the same eons that we have practiced the masculine archetype in sociopolitical systems economic systems education we've also practiced it in relationship mm. and if you look at the contract of marriage it's one of the most profoundly patriarchal concepts out there it is an ownership mechanism of women historically that I think subtly is suppressing that feminine archetype for thousands of years. 
But there's a, a bigger problem with it than even that, which is the model is that two individuals in the highest vibration, not wanting to own each other necessarily or anything like that, and, and really falling in love, whatever it is, are given a construct of this exclusive relationship that is called in the Course in Miracles at least a special relationship. And this special relationship is a perfect mechanism by which two split minds split by the the masculine and feminine, you know, only only understanding its ability to express one perhaps, but also split between ego and truth. Mm-hmm. And so you have two split minds you, and you can see the dark side of that, uh, those two split minds seeing in the other person the light that they think they cannot get from source, mm. that they cannot get from a God. Right. And so they bring those two dark sides of the mind together in the effort to complete the mind. And so we have this contract that induces this relationship where each individual is seeing in the other something that they revere. And it's probably a very bright and beautiful truth that's in that person. And in the Course of Miracles, in a daunting short paragraph describing the, the special relationships, it says, you will see in the other person a trait that you do not believe you can get from God. Mm-hmm. And you will then tap into that trait and you will rob them of that until it is gone. And then you will leave. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> like yeah. that? What? And yet, you know, and the point it's is, that, you it's don't. That same consumptive process that consumptive we see out in the world. Scarcity process, yeah. right? Because you believe, oh, I can't, I don't have this trait and therefore I'm incomplete or I'm insecure in mm. this setting or this setting. But if I hang out with this person and live vicariously through them, and you will drain them of that energy because you're vicariously living through that space rather than completing the, that masculine feminine archetype or even you know the, the complete mind in yourself. And so the alternative, I mean, when you read that, that Course in Miracles and you read what the agreement is in that contract of a special relationship, it reads pretty frightening. You, you have to agree that there's two battling egos that have different agendas and will always right. be in conflict. You have to agree that there are uh, there's going to be pain and suffering. You have to agree that there is death. You know, it goes down the list and it's just like, wow, really? That can't, can't be. And then you look back at the traditional vows that are handed to kids these days and until death do us part and all these things, it's like, whoa. Yeah. We have baked in this scarcity m- masculine archetype into this space. The alternative you just described, which is within each of us, looking to the divine, finding the divine feminine, finding the divine masculine, spinning those together. That's referred to as holy relationship. And it's in an individual. Yeah. It's the idea of coming into relationship with ourselves on that level is such a radical jump for me after years of listening to people talk about self-love and you know mm-hmm. self-realization and mindfulness. Like we've all been doing it and we're still doing the same thing. So what were we lacking? For me, the big breakthrough has been like, oh my the power that I could carry, the power that I could transmit into my clinic or into a patient or into a colleague or into the world itself or into the soil of a farm I'm visiting, the power that I could bring into that space with swirling those divine masculine and feminine together within my own body, becoming a channel for something greater than myself for my own good. Because the ecstasy that happens in your body when you're mm-hmm. spiraling the, those divine masculine and feminine within yourself exceeds you know everything that we would perhaps have dumbed down to sex or something like that historically sure. right um so i'm fascinated now by this holy relationship concept and of course when holy relationship occurs and you get multiple people 
you've gone, gone now from this exclusive special thing to an inclusive state of love because there's literally an infinite amount. There's no more scarcity of the love and you're no longer having to contract for, look, you're going to give me your love until you die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and instead it's like, okay, I have infinite love already. I have the, the whole source within me. So I'm going to be witness to your journey and your growth. And so marriage in a weird way has indoctrinated or created doctrine and limited growth and change in the same way that science has come to 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 resist you know intellectual development it's interesting because i've been on a a very similar and interesting journey i understood the philosophical underpinnings of this when i initiated my journey into polyamory i was like love is infinite and can be expressed and found anywhere and to try and contain it and claim ownership of love itself is fallacy so poly, so there, therefore polyamory that was my conclusion that I that I drew and it was a it was a beautiful and brutal journey you know very very difficult to rewrite those patterns and programs of possession and the way in which we validate our love by the choice of another and this journey you know eight year journey had so much love and gratitude to Whitney for going through it with me and learning all the hard way because we didn't have a lot of models and then ultimately <clears throat> letting that go and entering into what I call, you call holy relationship, I call sacred union with Vailana. And that principle by which we operate is that we use each other as a doorway to see the infinite within ourselves, right? And this is a way in which, yes, it is, a, you could call it special, but it's special only because we found someone that allows, that makes it a little bit easier for us to see the everything in ourself and bringing in the practices different tantric practices different ways in which we can merge completely into two whole two whole you know beings in a complete state of inner being with the everything by using each other as a door you know it's not like we're worshiping the we're going through the door this is a ramdas thing like don't just worship the gate go through the gate <laughs> you know go through the gate to god and i think this is the way we need to rewrite the understanding of relationship. And it doesn't denigrate polyamory. You can do it that way too. I mean, that requires a level of consciousness that I was not able to rise to. I wasn't able to get past my jealousies and get past my possessions. And But I still fundamentally don't think it's impossible to find a doorway through, you know, a pathway to God through many, many doors. And And, and ultimately that's the idea is that you could, find that through completely non-sexual relationships and friendships and pets and trees and, and the whole world itself. Once you learn to find that doorway, you can do it. But I think reframing relationship as that, as, a, as this sacred union, as the way to find com, you know, this full completion of self through the special codes that you'll unlock in each other and the, and the support that you'll have. And then changing the ritual itself. You know, we got we wanted to get married. There's a lot of legal reasons and things to get married. We wanted to get married. So we just went and did it, got married by Elvis and it was 30 minutes. <laughs> you know, we were with our buddies. He sang some songs and it was like, it was fun. And it, we handled the legal aspect of it, but we've been building like, what does a sacred union marriage look like? And it doesn't look like any of the, any of the wedding rituals that I've seen at least it's gonna be very different. And we're trying to construct this from the get ground up. Like, what does this ritual look like here going forward? 
That's exactly right. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, when we look at the sexual revolution, as it's been termed since the 60s, you know, the, you know, fast forward from the 60s to, you know, 60 years later now, the, the struggles and the breakthroughs and the new freedom of thought, expression and everything else through, whether it be the LGBTQ community or the the more recent transition, not just asking about sexual identity, but actually gender identity and all these things. I think those are all getting at this understanding that the vibration, there's a lack of coherence between the dogmatic, you know, binary systems that have been put out there by the patriarchy. So that's all true. But I find that, you know, and especially in my clinic, working with all populations, you know, in, in Denver, I work very closely with a, a lot of the LGBTQ community there. And this was back in the 90s when HIV was just terrifying still. We were dealing with massive, you know, death tolls and all of that in the inner city environments in the U.S. But I was watching, you know, very broken spirits and minds, you know, expressing themselves in every gender, every, you know, sexual identity. Yep. And so whether we call it monogamy, polyamory, some alternative or, you know, various versions of gender or sexual identity, the, the split mind persists in most of us, you know. Yep. And so in the end, I think we're going to find out that once we put out their education and training mechanisms to get people into that sacred state in and of themselves. Can you imagine if at kindergarten we started connecting children to meditation, to the practice of being aware of energy and just start that process and let them develop an intuition? And what are they going to start to express when they're 16, 18, 25 years old? It's going to be much different, obviously. And so the education system as it aligns with the fabric of the universe is what is what is energy how does it move what is life maturing into on this planet what is the planet itself doing from a sacred geometry and mathematical spin that's changed so much in the last you know five years the geometry of the earth is changing fundamentally what does that mean for our species what does it mean for this extinction event are how do they overlap all these things are fascinating and i think it will help us push quickly past the schisms of you know the dichotomous things well are you lesbian are you non-binary or are you polyamorous or you you know right we're going to lose those titles at some point finding out that we either have a unified mind or a schismed mind right and when we have unified mind and the masculine and feminine becomes embraced talk about flight straight you know that bird is going to be on target and when we look through you know, just the emergence of biology and biophysics as kind of an emerging field over the last, you know, 30 years, 50 years really. But, and, you know, there were certainly precursors to that, but, you know, Rife and some of the guys in the mid mid 20th century there were mind blowing and understanding energetics and energetics of cancer and things like that. But those were, you know, just ripples compared to what's going on now with all of the awareness of scalar wave versions of biology and everything that's kind of imprinted in us as these deep mathematical truths that can be reignited, tuned into to create coherence and spontaneous healing events occur. And you see this through Dispenses work or, you know, Tony Robbins, any of these guys who've made, you know, a name for themselves in neuroenergetics and, you know, mm-hmm. report spontaneous healings. They're simply just uncovering, you know, what has long been held, known by the matriarchy, which is you bring a a being in line with its original nurturing 
math within itself and it yields. And so we've had that. And I think you were talking earlier before the show, perhaps around the effort to burn women at the stake who had this energy within them and that collective loss. But uh, unfathomable, that loss. Going going back, and I, and I, you know, obviously this is, we could go into that and really take a moment, and maybe we should before I even go into what I was going to formally say, but so many, you know, during the Inquisition, during the witch trials, during the hysteria in which there was the unclean, and then there was the, the holy, and then really this was just an idea of the schismed mind and the fear of of the illumination of how you know of how challenging that was to the ego that was in the dominant position the masculine that was in the dominant position which feared its overtaking and then the violence that's been perpetrated to maintain it i mean it is truly truly one of the great tragedies of of human history so i don't want to skip over that but i do want to say that one of the things that came to mind was when i was I was in seventh grade and I started taking traditional Gong Fu. And there's a long tradition in, you know, China and in India where respectively they call the energetic field of life, they call it chi or prana, mm-hmm. right? And this is largely discarded by the West as just like some woo-woo shit that came. But these are ancient, ancient wisdom traditions that have been practiced for thousands of years. And Craig Balcom, he was my instructor and uh, for this Kung Fu. One of the things we did, of course we did cool stuff with staffs and swords because that's what got me into it. But one of the important practices was a combination of breath work and moving of, moving of the body, shaking my hands out. And really you'd have me shake my hands out and start doing deep breathing. And I'm in seventh grade, never done any of this, shaking my hands, deep breathing, and then trying to visualize energy flowing through my hands. And then after that, I would move my hands together and I could feel this ball of energy, almost like this magnetic hockey puck of energy that was moving from my hands. And I was like, holy shit, I can feel it. It's real. I can feel it. Like, wow. And at that point, when you have that gnosis, where it's not like a hypothetical, like maybe there's energy like this, but you feel it, that changes everything. And if that was taught, you know, it just reframes the whole paradigm of how you look out at the world. Wow, there's energy that we can draw in as we accumulate this prana, this chi that's the life force all around us, right in front of us as we build this within our body, then we can condense it and move it with our hands and feel that at that point, well, you know, really you have to take a fresh look at everything. And of course, 30 years, you know, 30 years later, this is still a path where I'm continuing to uncover how powerful this is. But I'm sure the, you know, old masters and and mystics and, and wisdom keepers of the East have been like, yeah, silly. We've been telling you guys forever. Yeah. You know, it's about time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that loss of philosophy underpinning science right right so when we let go of philosophy that built physics and we became biologically minded we reversed our intelligence because we went from an einsteinian quantum physics world of ancient chinese medicine acupuncture qigong tai chi and then into you know, kung fu all the martial arts out into yoga traditions and across the world you know and i interestingly the um 
the Irish came up with their own form of, of their whole science of acupuncture 1,200 years ago without contact to to uh, Asia. And so they, instead of having the meridian system mapped as, as are more similar between the Chinese and Japanese, they actually created this beautiful Irish knot design of how energy flows through the system. And I'm not going to be surprised if the Irish actually had the right model uh, wow. because it's nonlinear. Yeah. And the meridian system is drawn so linear through Chinese and Japanese acupuncture charts. Uh, but the Irish managed to picture that in three dimensions and weave these Irish knots through the body with these energy systems. And when I first saw that map, it just like, you know, goose bumped me out and made me realize that for all the energy we work we were doing in clinic, that I needed to keep an open hand on the possibility of, you know, fifth dimension, you know, kind of concepts where you've got, you know, collapsing space time and everything else in these weaving three and fifth dimension shapes going on through the, the electrical system of the body. And we step away from that world, you know, 1200 years ago in Ireland or something like that to, you know, 1910 Flexner report where we suddenly believe that the whole body is just mechanistic machinery, yeah. Newtonian, you know, so we step back from quantum physics to Newton, who's just says gravity works and, you know, and for every action, there's opposite equal reaction kind of thing. And it's like, okay, so it's just a machine. The body's just a machine. Right. So by 1910, we gave up on the possibility that the body is a quantum physics event. And we lost track of what life is at that point, because life is not about flesh. Obviously, life is something far more ethereal that animates flesh, mm -hmm. but it is certainly not the flesh that defines the animation. Right. And so we lost the animated belief of life in yeah, 1910. It's like, it's like, and a lot of people are realizing that, that it's not the brain that creates consciousness. It might be the consciousness that's creating the brain. You know, like this, it's like vice versa. Like we may have all of our thoughts wrong. Like everything is we're, we're self-generating it out of some Newtonian causality, whereas actually the causality is creating you know, us yes. in, in, in and of ourself. And it's like, all of these things are a complete reversal of, of the way that we're thinking about it now, but also it's this remembrance, as we said, you know, and, and I think probably one of the reasons why, you know, going back again, why the Irish wisdom was lost was because of the pressure the censorship, which was very violent back in those days. I mean, this was the Inquisition time. This was the time where religion, you know, decided that these things were of the devil, quote, which is basically just saying that this is in opposition to our belief structure, to our citadel and that scarcity mindset. Let's get rid of all of these, you know, wisdom keepers, call them witches. And we're seeing this same pattern now. Obviously, you can't burn anybody at the stake anymore, but you can cancel them on social media. You can censor them on their platforms. You can, you know, denigrate their work, call them woo-woo, kind of put them, in a, put them in a corner. And yeah, fuck yeah. Like I said in the car earlier, like I would say 98% of, of the Reiki that I've received from people, I'm like, thank you, I, I think. You know, like I, I think maybe, you know, it's not like everything works, you know, I'm not saying that like there's, but there are people where sometimes you have a healing that happens and you're like, holy shit, that was so fucking profound that I can never argue against that. I cannot gaslight myself into believing that that wasn't as real as anything I've ever experienced in my life, yes. right? And, and that's the, 
this is the thing. It's like, all right, maybe some people listening have been like, yeah, I tried acupuncture. I tried this and nothing happened. Sure, me too. Me too. I get it. It's not all it's not all the perfect practitioner, the true master, and you're not potentially in the right space, in the right state, and maybe you haven't felt it. And yes, the Newtonian method does work. You can take an Advil and your, your aches and pains will go away. I fucking get it. I get all that. We're not denying all of this. We're just trying to open and expand the mind to the possibility that there's way more happening always than we realize. Yeah, I, I, this is going to be a bit of a long story, but I think you know it, it's tempting to go ahead and tell a bit of my twelve-year journey here since opening my clinic sure. and leaving the university because I think it, it will help bridge the idea of okay. So anciently we we had energy medicine, we lost it, Newtonian. Now what does it all mean? Like, is it real? How is it real? That's really been the question because in two thousand ten when I left the university. I was suffering from pretty major depression, super isolated at the university level. You know, the academia is very good at creating political backstabbing environment where you really don't have a collegial experience where you feel like everybody's fighting over limited resources, whether it be at the NIH level, which is where all of our funding comes through is National Institutes of Health. Um, and you, so you're battling uh, over resources there. You're battling for resources at the university level. You're battling for tenure position and you know political stability because nobody really has got your back. And so you're just like clawing for this. And so the isolation that naturally occurs in academia keeps us from having quorum sensing. Mm. We, we can't actually reach high intelligence in academic centers because we're so schismed and fearful and in the scarcity mindset of one another and therefore so slow to change, right? And so when I made some breakthroughs in chemotherapy in 2008, I was so excited. I was like, ran down the hall to my buddies in the onc world and it's like, look at what just happened. Like, this is freaking crazy. It's a vitamin A compound and look what freaking has happened to these cancer cells. <laughs> And they're like, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. I was like, what do you mean it's interesting? Like you, you've got <laughs> cancer patients all day long. Can you imagine what this is capable of? Went back to my mentors like, all right, so breakthrough. Now what? And she's like, the best case scenario will be 25 years before those guys down the hall are able to practice what you discovered. Wow. 25 years. It turned out it would never come to be because as I moved into clinical trials, one of the pharmaceutical companies had patented vitamin A compounds broadly as a chemotherapeutic agent. So I called them up naively, uh, very excited, you know, got this thing working, it's doing this and that. And it was literally uh, three questions. Like, you know, what type of cancers do you think it treats? How long do you think you would have to treat for? Do you think it actually is getting at the, you know, at the apoptosis or su suicide of the cell itself? Said, so not only do I think, I can show you the data and blah, blah, blah. Click. It was literally hung up on me, and I just thought line went dead, or I lost my line. Call back. No answer. No answer. Finally, after a few days of no contact, um, I go to my mentor and explain the situation. She's like, "You should have never called." Like she's like, "That is not a patent. That is there for for monetary gain. That is something called a blocking patent." Making sure that this thing doesn't come to light. And I was like, I couldn't even fathom the words blocking right. patent put together. You know, right. I thought the whole concept of intellectual property at that point was to advance, you know, knowledge. So the idea that academia as a whole is, you know, broadly putting blocking patents in place, and we saw a huge version of this happen right at the beginning of 
of the pandemic in 2020, uh, IBM and Harvard rushed into the patent world. And when they saw the sudden loss of control of the academic environment and the inevitable shift to online education, they saw that they were gonna lose control of, you know, that the power structures that happen through, you know, hierarchical education systems. Because ultimately, graduating Harvard Law is only important because everybody who's around you has all the right connections to make you successful. Sure. And so the information is the same at any other law school, but the network is different. And you start to take away that network into the digital realm and you put everything online, you start to lose control of that that hierarchical structure. So IBM and, and Harvard teamed up and filed like 26 blocking patents for online education. And so, you know, it, it, against learning management systems, you know. So it's just like this interesting situation where we have, you know, patriarchal power structures now making power grabs that are looking more and more desperate, which I think is a very good sign. You know? Right. When you have educational centers trying to block education, that that has to be one of the last moves, right? right. That's a dead entity at that point, right. right? It's undermining its own soul at that point. And so we don't have to really attack Harvard for that or anything else or IBM. The reality is that they are practicing a finite game that's destroying itself. And this is been an interesting journey for me since that chemotherapy thing of realizing, okay, this is not how academia works. This is not how information travels. I'm, I'm going to have to leave academia if I'm going to actually ask interesting questions for myself and practice medicine interestingly for myself and my patients. And the only thing I could really fall back on at that point that I thought was doing no harm was nutrition, which unfortunately I had no training in whatsoever. And so I had to start self-training in nutrition and you know, reading a bunch on it, but also just trusting a lot of the science that had come out of Cornell and Columbia and some of these other programs. In Again, the 60s a, and forgotten, 70s. a forgotten wisdom. Let food be thy medicine. Hippocrates, right? Like this is. I mean, you take a Hippocratic oath, but do you want to? You want to read his read rest his of work? his work? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like let yeah. food be thy medicine. Yeah. Come on. And Hippocratic oath, do no harm. Yeah. Well, that hasn't been going so well. <laughs> <laughs> We kind of have Hippocrates really and Jesus stepped in. Hippocrates and Jesus are hanging out somewhere, being like, "Motherfuckers, we, d- we really did our best here, yeah. and this got royally fucked, royally, like, and do no harm, right?" Um, so you know, moving that that needle forward, then from nutrition, interestingly, it did come back to the Hippocratic concept of food be thy medicine. And so started applying, you know, a lot of, you know, 50, 60 year old nutrition science that had come out of the post-World War II era that was really disruptive, really cool new concepts around nutrient density and all these things. So started applying that. And within two years of really intense application in my patients who I was asking to really step up, I was in one of the poorest counties in Virginia, rural fifth generation poverty, really hasn't recovered since the Civil War, like deep, deep poverty that I couldn't have imagined coming from Boulder, Colorado, where I was born and raised. The West is so young, California being the most ridiculous version of that. But we don't know what ancestral, you know, karmic debt and karmic poverty looks like in in the west you go to the east or the deep south and you feel that energy of deep entrenched hopelessness that can ride underneath the surface there that was the county i kind of started in there was no grocery stores really offering much in that county they were mostly eating from from uh, sheets gas stations and the like so the journey into nutrition showed me that the food was no longer working. We had about a third of our patients that as soon as you put them on kale, you know, juicing, they would suddenly spike inflammation markers. They would feel brain fog, chronic uh, fatigue, 
inflammation in the joints, all this stuff. And at first, I just thought they were non-compliant. For two years, I bl- kept blaming the patient, which is what we're very well trained to do in, in academia. So you were doing, just to be clear, so you were you were investigating an intervention in which you gave people green juices. Yep, cruciferous vegetables, juicing primarily, because I wanted to get working. so much in there. And not only was it, a third of people work beautifully. Diabetes reverses, you know, you see re- regression of tumors, all kinds of cool stuff. Third of patients, no change whatsoever. And a third of patients, increased inflammation. And so that really started to challenge this. And so I started going back to that Hippocratic concept of well, the medicine has got to be in the food. Started looking through nutrient density, you know, science out of agriculture, which I had never been exposed to. And there was so much data that was stunning, like lycopene in, in tomatoes, that's like one of the main, main anti-cancer compounds within a tomato. It just disappeared over the last you know, 40 years of agriculture. Um, and so same thing with a lot of the alkaloids that come in those cruciferous vegetables that are anti-anxiety, anti-depressive, anti-cancer, uh, anti-rhythmic, anti-hypertensive, like any, any disease that's epidemic in, in our culture today has an alkaloid within those cruciferous vegetables that's easily treated, you know. And so what happened to induce the chronic disease epidemics that started in the 1990s was the deletion of the food in our medicine. And we did that through herbicides. And so 1972 was, or uh, sorry, 74 was the rollout of glyphosate as mm-hmm. Roundup. 76 became the first big years of, of, of large scale applications. But in 1991, we made a big transition where it went from a spot herbicide weed killer to a crop treatment. And we started with wheat. And so in 91, a farmer up in Ireland, actually, I'm pretty sure it was Ireland, maybe it was Scotland, but it was uh, up in Northern Europe. Yeah realized that the winter was coming early enough you know weeks before anticipating they were going to lose their entire wheat crop couldn't get it to harvest quick enough because it wasn't dry yet you have to wait for the wheat to dry before you harvest else it molds immediately and so he had the idea of spraying all of his field with roundup to kill the wheat immediately dry it out it worked beautifully within two days the whole field was dry desiccated and so he went through and harvested that wheat published that experience within a year Monsanto had rushed around, re, rebranded it as a desiccant for wheat. And every year since then, we've increased the amount of acreage of wheat production sprayed directly as a desiccant right at the time of harvest. And so we started putting this chemical straight into our food right before consumption. And it turns out that glyphosate blocks the shikimate pathway and other enzymatic pathways that are specific to plants that build a lot of the, the nutrients within food, perhaps most importantly, the, the essential amino acids, which are called the, uh, the um, uh, I'm sorry, the <laughs> blanking on my, my list there, but it's, it's three main ones. There's tyrosine, tryptophan, and phenylalanine are the three essential amino acids there. Aromatic was the word I was missing there. Aromatic amino acids, which is a description of the specific carbon ring that it's capable of making through the shikimate pathway. There's only 22 amino acids that build the 480,000 different proteins in your body. So this is literally the alphabet of protein synthesis. Mm. 22 letters. And of those, there's nine essentials that are called essential because we can't make them in our own biology. So we rely on bacteria, fungi, and plants to produce these nine essentials. And so when you start deleting these nine essentials, it's like removing vowels from the English alphabet. You start misspelling proteins. And so when we started spraying first our wheat in 92, and then by 96, our corn, soybean, by 2003, 30 crops, including things like sugar beets and 
now really ridiculous roses, tulips. Like we're, we're spraying, we're genetically engineering nearly everything that ends up in a household to handle Roundup directly. And so when we did that, we started deleting out the alkaloids. And so the reason that my food program was not being effective and in fact hurting some of my patients was because they were eating conventionally grown rather than organic. Right. And they had high residues, especially in kale. Kale and the cruciferous vegetables have very high glyphosate residues if grown under conventional uh, agricultural practices. And so when you get those high residues of glyphosate, it acts as a direct toxin to the human body. And we see the breakdown of tight junctions in the gut, the blood-brain barrier, kidney tubules. You see precancerous shifts happen quickly. And so that glyphosate injury was happening. And had the alkaloids been present, it probably would have been okay. But it also deletes the alkaloids. So it both does direct injury as a toxin and has deleted the medicine from the food that would have perhaps ameliorated the injury in the first place. And so that was the moment we lost the Hippocratic truth. Yeah. Food no longer is our medicine. And every year since then, you know, we have seen an encroachment through our regulatory process of more and more chemical disruption of biologic nutrients within our food. Uh, the US EPA and USDA approved a three chemical GMO seed uh, about three years ago, 2018, I think. And so that was uh, glyphosate, which is Roundup, 2,4-D, and atrazine, I think, is the third one in there, or, or no, dicamba. And so that allowed then farmers to spray three of these chemicals that disrupt completely different you know, physiologic pathways in the nutrients of the food into the same crop without killing the crop, meaning that the food then getting the consumer has three toxins that are disrupting different pathways within human biology. So uh, we have coming out for approval in 2022 a five-chemical seed oh, great. GMO. So now it's Liberty Link, which is out of Bayer. Um, Liberty Link is uh, glufosinate, and it uh, is an interesting chemical that disrupts a lot of the protein synthesis for reproduction and things like this. So you've got this interesting creep of you know, deletion of all of the intelligence of nature out of our food. So I think we began with taking it and taking the women out. And then we found out that wasn't enough because nature had a feminine archetype within yeah, it that gotta, was still delivering too much health. That too. We got to get that out of there. And so the pharmaceutical industry started to own the chemical herbicide industry in the 1990s. And so uh, Pharmacia was the first company to own Monsanto. And now it's, of course, owned by Bayer. But these are pharmaceutical companies that are treating diseases that are being increased in rate because of the loss of nutrients because of the herbicides that are being applied on the front end. So it's such a perfect business model in that you've got this you know, deletion of the intelligence of nature and the feminine archetype from our food, and then a very patriarchal, you know, short-sighted, finite game of pharmaceutical application on the back end. And of course, you're making $800 per $1 of gain on the front end. And so right now, glyphosate Roundup actually doesn't make much money at all because the the vast majority is made in China for pennies on the dollar and flooded the, the global marketplace. We're now spraying 4 billion pounds of, of glyphosate globally into our soil and water systems. And that 4 billion pounds is water soluble, which means it gets into our water table. It then evaporates. 75% of the air measured in the United States is now testing positive for glyphosate. 75% of the rainfall is testing, actually, I think it's closer to 81% testing positive for glyphosate. And so we've got this water soluble toxin that's deleting kind of the feminine archetype, if you will, out of nature and challenging this. And at the same time, fascinatingly, what we've been doing in our lab for the last 10 years is studying the direct effect of that glyphosate on 
the gut membrane and you see this loss of the tight junctions, which are the Velcro that holds the billions of cells together that make the largest barrier in your body, which is the gut membrane, it covers two tennis courts in surface area. It's huge. And that massive surface area is one cell layer thick, which is half the width of a human hair. So you have this like thin cellophane, almost microscopic cellophane layer between you and the outside world that then suddenly turns into a leaky sieve if you're eating glyphosate residues from your food or water or you're showering in glyphosate and you're breaking the tight junctions with skin and you're starting to absorb through your skin and gut and everything else. So it's this maelstrom of activity. So I find it just poetically beautiful that the patriarchal, you know, colonial mindset takes down the feminine with a flexin report in 1910. By 100 years later in 2010, the chemical industry owns the entire food system, treating the diseases that are coming out of that with that. And underlying all of that is the, I think, philosophical result of loss of self-identity. Yeah, Because tight junctions are the beginning of your self-identity. When you turn into that leaky sieve, your immune system, 70% of which lies right behind that gut membrane, doesn't know what's outside and inside. And so you suddenly lose human self-identity through the loss of the microbes. Glyphosate's a potent antibiotic, kills bacteria, fungi, protozoa. And so we're denuding the gut, gut ecosystem, destroying the self-identity. So now we've lost the forest and we've lost the self-identity within the human and we start to act as we are today. And yeah, pro-inflammatory cytokines start rushing through the brain. We get more fatigued. We reach to things that stimulate you know, energy or decrease fatigue and we're ever, ever increasing on this pathway and it just continues on ad infinitum. And the other challenge, of course, is that all of these massive industries, they are the ones who are supporting political campaigns. They're the ones buying advertising on, you know, on TV and on media. So the information from the top down level and then the campaigns from the top down level they're not going to respond to the actual information as well, even if they had it, which they probably don't. I think most people are operating in the dark on this. Like even the people who are you know, spraying the chemicals are probably like, oh yeah, this is good. This is just what you do. They're not even aware. No. There's people a lot of times hypothesize that there's this you know, dark <clears throat> Illuminati that is secretly eating organic vegetables and secretly knows all this and is just trying to fuck everybody else up. No, everybody's, in my opinion, I don't know who knows, but it seems like everybody's probably fucking themselves up too. Just everybody's in this, just in this kind of intentional myopic ignorance about the whole, maybe with some slight knowledge, but with enough self-serving bias and enough short-term thinking about the next profit cycle, the next political election cycle, and just supporting the system and not wanting to let down your shareholders and not wanting to give up your vacation home or whatever the fuck, then this thing perpetuates until ultimately it becomes self-devouring. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the system devour itself, our health system devour itself, our structure starts to devour itself as we start to disintegrate internally so is our society starting to disintegrate like as above so below yes and so this is the this is the time that we're in now and it's both exciting and terrifying i think it's necessary for sure right that's what we can be really confident in is the journey is always the right journey <laughs> right like it's almost yeah. like it had it it, these systems had to go to this yeah. place in order to in order to change finally collapse because yeah. we're really talking about taking down ten thousand years of a, a primary masculine archetype, at least ten thousand. Who knows how long? 
and to be able to switch that to a you know balanced feminine masculine archetype it it will fundamentally change absolutely everything we do and so you have to see that self-destruction of the masculine before that feminine is really going to be able to even have space to breathe right because in the strength of it i would say a good example would be the post-world war ii era and so at that moment the masculine archetype had managed to capture more physical and you know energetic power than ever before in humanity and so we had managed a massive full-scale global war poured you know trillions of gallons of gasoline and everything else into moving troops all over the world we had killed more human beings than ever time in history you know we, we had this focal point of energy and coming out of that you see the most extreme success of the masculine archetype and then you see the built world that we have today you know new york city becomes what it is the you know china becomes what it is and and so the the patriarchy finally reached its its highest tempo i don't think the feminine archetype wing could have unfolded in that space and so when we mm. saw the concept of the dawning of aquarius in the late 60s free love movement all of that that was a that was a vibration of the future starting to to express itself in humanity and there was a, a shift in awareness in the the physiology of the biologic thing that we would call human but it wasn't there wasn't energetic space for the shift to happen and so that that generation late 60s early 70s would suddenly be shifted from a plant medicine of of marijuana as a as a primary resource that had really managed to allow that generation to unplug from the post-world war ii drive right so thc just shuts down the drive part of the brain and suddenly you got all these young people unwilling to go work for the man, go work on Wall Street, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's like, we're screwed as a country by 1978 because there is nobody going to go generate money. Like we were losing our economic wellness and it was blamed on Carter and all this. No, it was literally the beginning of this rising of the feminine and the loss of that. And so late 70s, really starting in 76, you see this huge infusion of cocaine into the environment and so the cocaine flips back on that drive state and we created the 1980s as the disco movement really embraced the cocaine kind of environment and all that and so we changed the drug stimulus to society <laughs> and suddenly we got drive and suddenly we had the biggest boom in you know economics from 1980 to 1998 with the you know economic revolution of wall street and you know all of the bs you know macroeconomic policies that got put in place to, to exponentially grow economies beyond their their biologic you know capacity so we had this revolution that started then that then collapsed easily by a simple input of a drug you know i think and now we see this resurgence of plant medicine happening obviously uh, i've been told there's 500 ayahuasca ceremonies every weekend in la now which is kind of a, a maybe that's hopeful b we got to get the freak out of LA. <laughs> so let's maybe not think that that is, is getting us in touch with the feminine archetype entirely there. Um, but, you know. It's going where it's needed it's, most. It's, the so, journey is the journey. So yeah. <laughs> whatever is needed there. But, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued that we are seeing this repercussion now and you have CEOs of large corporations freaking out about all of their best people 
taking ayahuasca and disappearing. And it's yeah, like, I, I just, had that, I just had that conversation and I won't talk about which one of these massive, you know, organizations was involved in this, but a massive global entertainment organization and, uh, and one of the founding principals and leader of the organization was like very interested in spirituality, but also has a huge distaste for ayahuasca because he's lost some of his best, highest producing people who would, you know, be in the clubs, maybe doing a little cocaine, being fired up, working that 14 hours, trying to create something magnificent on the old paradigm way, the finite game way of let's get people to, you know, get the champagne bottle that costs a hundred thousand dollars that's you know five feet tall and has 20 sparklers and seven hot girls bring it out you know like let's 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 like try to make that happen and then they do ayahuasca like what the fuck are we doing like what are we doing anymore you know but i think starting to understand and, and the awareness is starting to come through like all right all right i get it i'm seeing the trend they're good they're good at this you know they're good at spotting the trends and seeing it and i think the the best and brightest of us we'll start to make the adaptations ahead of it and be ready for the feminine wing to unfurl and serve the world in that way. And then there's gonna be some people who are gonna ride it out like blockbuster video and say, nope, you know, like fucking DVD rentals and VHS rentals are gonna be the way forever. It's like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna go that way. Like if, you're, if we're wise, we're gonna start preparing for the way that this new world is going to unfurl. And if we don't, there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of catastrophic damage to those institutions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting reality is, you know, everything dominant now is going to have to fail, you know. And so all the dominant, dominant paradigms will fundamentally become very unstable. And, and in that instability, it's going to take very little effort to collapse current systems. And so that's... David Martin does a good job speaking about the wobble effect and you know a top spinning at speed is very difficult to tip over but as soon as its speed diminishes it takes a very small vector of force to start it into a wobble state and once wobble occurs it cannot be reversed and it is a decay rate that's accelerating and will mm-hmm. ultimately tip the tip the top over and so what we're seeing I think between 19, 1968 and the emergence of this new understanding of the feminine archetype perhaps and 2028 which i think is going to be a next kind of major tipping point the difference will be the amount of wobble that has been you know put into the dominant top spinning you know powers that are there why 2028 well i it comes down to a lot of different factors obviously but 2028 is an interesting concurrence of you know indigenous wisdoms as to what this era is between 2017 and 2027 but also an interesting phenomenon happening perhaps in our genetics um and so this is we're only going to figure this out in retrospect because we don't have a way of prospectively showing epigenetic shift but what we can look back through is the epigenetic patterns of uh emotions now starting to be understood and so when an emotion of fear or guilt is inflicted on human biology, the genetics in every single cell of the body shift. And it's a disempowering event. It's basically shifting the biology from an infinite game of regeneration and life to one of survival. And that shift of fear and guilt has been dominant in the human experience, I think, since our origin. And I don't think it, I've never seen it in my life stronger than it is right now. Bingo. Yeah. And I think we're gonna see a massive amount of premature death in this decade. 
and it's going to be through lots of different mechanisms, natural disasters, you know, chemical warfare as we become more and more unstable with the U.S. dollar and all kinds of things. You know, there's going to be lots and lots of mechanisms of this premature death. But what we're seeing is that this heightened state of fear and guilt that's been induced on the planet in these last two years has prepared us for a turnover in, in genetics because you and I and many of us have seen that for every marked fear and guilt moment, there's been a very bright alternate response, which sure. is one of hope, a new paradigm. And so what we're seeing is now a division at the genetic level of our species. One of our, half of our species prone to the fear and guilt patterns and now expressing it very violently on their own genetics. The other suddenly escaping fear and guilt perhaps for the first time in our history. Mm -hmm. And I can see this in my clinic in spades. When a cancer patient walks in, I do not talk about cancer at all in the first three hour visit. Instead, I just infuse them with an understanding that this is the most important thing that's ever happened to them. And it is a gift because if they pay attention to the mechanisms by which this thing occurred in their body, it will be their greatest teacher. And it will take them to a point of enlightenment that will completely change their sense of reality. And they will walk out a different person three hours later, forgetting that the reason they came in was the cancer. That's how we begin a healing process, is get them out of the genetics of fear and guilt. And this is where we need to begin as a society, is are we really fearing a virus? What is a virus? A virus is a genetic data bank for adaptation and biodiversification of the planet. Viruses have never been against life. Viruses are not even living life forms. They are the genetic memory of our potential. And so when we see viruses go rampant through a population, it's because it's time for a shift. It's time for adaptation to fundamentally occur now. And so we have had 12,800 viral pandemics since 1976 with the launch of glyphosate. This is predictable because when you put extinction level stress on the microbiome and soil systems, water systems and the like, the stress of the chemical destruction forces a genetic effort towards adaptation. And so the number of viruses that have been produced in these last you know, few decades of chemical agriculture has dwarfed any other genetic moment on the planet. Four billion years of history and we just reached the highest genetic potential that we've ever had because the viruses are here. And the viruses are here to show us a new pathway forward past the, the chemical milieu, past the trauma. Ultimately, most importantly in this decade, perhaps past fear and guilt. Hmm. And what's happening in the revolution of water science right now starts to bring us back to the previous discussion of energetic medicine versus Newtonian biologic belief. The water uh, molecule is certainly the most unique and critical molecule on the planet because it's the only one that really functions as a translation unit from the biophysical field of energetics into biology. And it does that by the vibrational state of this strange molecule. H2O is the most nefarious of, of compounds. It's never H2O, which we've always been told it was. Mm -hmm. It's always OH. And every millionth of a second or so, it switches hydrogens. And so it's an oxygen that's in this quantum state of plasma, basically, with this energetic field around it as it's releasing and, and gaining hydrogen. Hydrogen, of course, when letting go of its electron, is a proton, uh, a naked proton. And the work of Nassim Haramein and, and others have now demonstrated that the most complete model of the human proton is a black hole. 
It's a 64 double tetrahedron spinning in a double torus to create the exact form and function of the black hole in the center of our galaxy. And interestingly, black holes have long been recognized by the astrophysicists to all be connected by wormholes. Stephen Hawkins discovered the Hawkins particles, which was emissions of information coming out of black holes and galaxies around the universe. He held, and many as others held initially, that that was just chaotic information. It wasn't organized data. It wasn't organized knowledge. That now has been dismissed. It is structured information in the black holes in constant communication. So what is the fabric of the universe? What is the fabric of the knowledge field? What is God starting to look like the sacred geometry of the black hole? And if every black hole communicates no matter on its fractal scale, then that proton that's released from water as a bare hydrogen lacking its electron for just a millionth of a second can connect to all information on the planet and in the universe through its black hole space. Mm -hmm. And so we have this possibility that we are spinning black holes constantly in the water state that is allowing transmission and reception of all of the information that we would be generating from our experiential existence. And so when we look down at the water structure in the human cell, there's a couple of very interesting phenomena that tie back to these vi this virus story, which is the genetics of the viruses are certainly the genetics of every living being. So the human cell has 20,000 genes, which is a pathetically low number. Fruit fly has 13,000 genes. Flea has 30,000 genes. So you sit a little closer to a fruit fly than a flea and your genetic intelligence, except that it's not the genes that make your intelligence. It's the 98.5% of the rest of the DNA that didn't seem to be doing anything. We in fact called it junk DNA that seems to have all the intelligence in it. And we now know that of those 20,000 human genes, over 50% were directly inserted into the mammalian genome from viruses. More than 8% of our genes from mom and dad were actually inserted by retroviruses like HIV. And so we have to fundamentally start, stop demonizing all viruses. We need to understand them as functions of genetic intelligence. And when our bodies decide to integrate those into DNA, there's a high purpose within that. And so we are we can show that the movement in the last extinction event where we lost dinosaurs and 97% of life on earth, maybe as little as 90%, but could have been as high as 97% of life gone, the amount of genetic information left from that extinction event had never occurred before. And so earth, as it moved forward from an extinction event, never struggled back to make dinosaurs, never struggled back to just recreate the ferns. Instead, we jumped from ferns to deciduous trees, flowering plants, wildflowers and, and, and grasslands. And so we jump from you know, reptile to avian to mammal. Each time, you know, especially that jump from avian to mammal, that first live birth experience required at least five critical genetic updates from the virome to allow us to have the first live birth. The placenta can't exist without critical retrovirus updates and things like this. And so what's happening right now, you know, as we see this sixth great extinction happening, we're the cataclysmic event, not only destroying the planet, but also creating the highest potential for intelligence to emerge. And interestingly, as that virus genetic information enters the cell, it goes through a very, very careful proofreading system. Cas9 won the Nobel Prize, interestingly, in 2020. Uh, could have been used to demonstrate that just by you know, Dr. Dwadna's TED talk in 2016, she was one of the Nobel recipients for, for the Cas9 discovery in 2020. 
But she gave a 2016 talk that said that Cas9 is the equivalent of a a vaccination card. He said Cas9 remembers every single virus that comes through it, and it decides very clearly as to whether that virus is going to be replicated or not. And once again, what's Cas9? What's Cas9? Cas9 is an enzyme that's responsible for translating a viral uh, uh, RNA or DNA strand into a protein or uh, retro into a, a messenger RNA or a reverse transcriptase, all kinds of mechanisms to put that genetic information into our DNA or into synthesis at the cytoplasm level. So Cas9 is like the gatekeeper for incoming genetic information. Mm. And it works really well. As I'm sitting here with you, I have 10 to the 15 viruses in my bloodstream. Not just 10 to the 15 of a few, I have 10 to the 15 different viruses in my bloodstream right now. Wow. And so when science rushes out and says we have a virus attacking us, you have to ask, is it really a virus attacking us? Or is there a new vulnerability that we've created? Or more interestingly, is there a new opportunity that we're stepping into by integrating this new information into our bodies? All right. That was one of the most incredible, <laughs> incredible rants of information that I've ever heard in my life. And I want to start and unpack a few things. First of all, I got really emotional when <clears throat> you talked about what you do when you have a cancer patient come in to see you you know my uh my uncle died of lymphoma and you know he didn't have a doctor like you you know and, and he didn't have me who knew a doctor like you at that point you know and and just the fear and he did his best and he was he was a fucking legend and he was a hero and he was trying everything from eating he, he went the nutritional route was eating raw livers from grass he was on up to some good stuff but the psychological aspect you know was just not available to him and um so it's just beautiful to hear that and uh, and it's it was really touching and and just it i know it to be right you know i know it to be right and and of course understanding how this fear and guilt and all of these different things that i mean this has been studied before i mean even in clinical research they've studied how how a doctor presents information affects the outcome of the patient like we know this we know what the nocebo is we know how language can be used to harm or to help we're aware but it's still not practiced at that level so even if all you're doing is you know averting the nocebo effect of mainstream you know medicine and inducing a very positive placebo effect which people claim like it's a nuisance it's the fucking thing it's the way in which we can translate our thoughts and beliefs into actual material changes within the body so whatever you want to call it or whether it's the actual the actual truth is what it feels like and resonates in my bones all the better but either way it doesn't matter it should be practiced universally because it's going to help and this is not anything that you have to even believe it's just the truth about what happens when you receive that and so just want to acknowledge you first for that it was just so beautiful to hear that one of the things to recognize in that transition as a physician is that i was trained to fear cancer and so i was in a fear and i had a huge guilt complex for every patient i lost and so fear and guilt is inherent to medical practice which then of course disempowers us to understand what the hell life is. And so when we approach disease through fear and guilt, we can never appreciate or experience vitality. And we don't expect vitality to occur in our patients because we don't believe in it. Yeah. And so it's this insidious thing. And so you what can't I teach had to what do, you don't know with the G. 
That's it. And when you start to, as a practitioner of any sort, move into clinical care, I think there's an inherent responsibility now as we start to understand all these epigenetic issues to make sure that you are losing the patriarchal belief that you're going to change the path for this disease for this patient. Because that is their journey that they wrote and they picked this path. So who the hell are you to say you're <laughs> going to change their story? What you can do is change the, change the terrain around their narrative that they've written for themselves and see if they have an, a chapter two. Help illuminate the options that they have in their path with the challenge that's presented. And even deeper, just empower them to listen into their soul and say, is this your exit strategy? Yeah. Because I lose a lot of patients to cancer, no matter how much fear and guilt we get rid of, not because the cancer was bad, but because that's what they picked. And so the joy that I have in my clinic is that the vast majority of patients that we come in contact, you know, a year or two years in are like, this cancer was the greatest gift I've ever had. And whether they go on to die from that or they go on to have spontaneous remissions or whatever occurs, it's the vitality within them. It's their autonomy, their sacred awareness of self that becomes the most important moment of their lives. Yeah. And that can happen no, no matter if it's leading to what we would call a death moment, which is obviously just rebirth. And so we need to stop playing the finite game of death is a definition. Death is a rebirth. It's a transition. It cannot be a failure because everybody's bigger after that moment than they were before that moment. So stupid definition of failure. And yet as physicians, we're held so carefully to sure. that metric. Sure. As surgeons, you you might lose your ability to get paid if you have a certain number of sure. you know, mortality around your surgeries or whatever. As, as cancer doctors, you get you know very dinged if you have a higher rate of death in your. So we have these metrics of death as failure. This is the finite crisis. The infinite game is recognizing this soul came in at the tipping point of all things. Seven point eight billion other light energy souls coming in at the same time to do something. And we need to have a very agnostic approach to understanding why they showed up, what they're here to do, what they're here to do. And my experience over and over again is when you get them out of fear and guilt, they immediately express what they've been waiting to express their whole lives. They, they say the most beautiful freaking things. And you see reconciliation through family lines, forwards, backwards, like it's nuts. And it's all it takes is letting go of fear and guilt. And then the cancer is suddenly not even the thing. It's finally overcoming the estranged kid who's been you know, a spiritual drain on this parent and yeah. uh, the guilt around five miscarriages or abortions. You know, the, All of these things that are buried underneath the surface of these cancers suddenly come to light and the person is transformed. And watching people leap from the body intentionally out of joy, knowing that they have a next mission is radically different than watching somebody die in the ICU with no hope. Right, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something that actually um, Joe Dispenza, when I was at his workshop, you know, he was explaining is, and, and a lot of the people who were there, is that you, know, you could do the work to cure the cancer, right? As, as this very outcome-driven approach, goal-oriented, masculine-driven approach, I'm gonna do the work. But if you really do the work, then the can whether you cure the cancer or not is not of the consequence because you've elevated yourself and your consciousness to a state in which that no longer matters. You're living life with such a fullness and such a love, and and so you know it's very challenging to 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 imagine that we have that much power. And but ultimately, like the message is, all right, maybe maybe with all of the maybe the cancer's gone too far from a biological level and this is this is the path but you do have a choice 
if available to you because of the awareness that you have, we all have a choice to how we orient ourselves to it. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the picking, that's the choosing. And how far that extends, well, this is part of the great mystery. You know, I mean, obviously we've seen, I'm sure you've seen in, in a lot of the people I talk to in Dispenza's, you know, uh, gathering and, and Joe himself and everybody, you know, massive, impossible, what quote, spontaneous remissions, right? Which was not so spontaneous because they were working, meditating through the void and actualizing this reality 10 hours a day or whatever, but spontaneous. Um, amazing things can happen, but really fundamentally, ultimately, it just came down to, no, no, it's not about that. It's about the orientation to it. And it's about the awareness of the entire spectrum. And I think that's the that's the really empowering message here is to get out of this idea of like, death should be avoided at all cost. Well, not living should be avoided at all cost. Death Bingo. is natural. Bingo. Because everything else is symptomatic, right? Right. And so we finally, I think, are there with the common cold, finally. Like, people are like, oh, I'm getting kind of a cold. I should take echinacea. I could take mm. some garlic. I should increase my wellness, and that cold some will zinc. go away. Yep. Yeah. We, we somehow haven't applied that to cancer yet. It's a symptom of dysfunctional communication at the cell level, failure of immune system, all that. But instead of saying, oh, I just need to get myself healthier, we see this as this like, you know, extrinsic attack on our otherwise yeah, healthy which system. Yeah, which is when then know. we create the war on cancer. The war on cancer. Yeah. And patriarchal to beat the band, right? So, so what is really intriguing to me right now is as we take this next leap to like understanding scientifically, how does somebody in a dispensa event eliminate cancer through every single organ system in their body? How is that physically possible? And so my lab has been working kind of backwards into this by studying Roundup initially. We started to really witness change in water structure inside the human cells. Water structure inside of human cells will tie us back to the virome in a second. But water structure inside a human cell is miraculous. Uh, Let me pause here one second and I want you to pick up this thought right where it is. So remember, I wanna just say that I've learned more about water from my cats. than I'd ever thought possible. Because again, I've heard this. I've heard about the structure of water and the energy of water, and I've heard about all of these things, but I've reduced it in my materialistic reductionist way, which is still a pattern that I hold in many things. Okay, well, this Mountain Valley water, which I religiously drink, is like, this is the best. You know, it has the right minerals and it's the right, you know, it comes from the earth and I trust that. But the cats have taught me something else because- I could pour this Mountain Valley water and I could pour it in a dish and I leave that dish flat and leave it there for two days. They will not fucking touch that water. But I flush the toilet. I flush the toilet and the water's swirling and my shit goes down the drain and there's probably a little bit of shit still in the toilet and whatever other fucking cleaners in there. But they'll choose that. I mean, these animals are intelligent. They'll choose that water that's been circulating and cycling and or alive they prefer it out of the faucet but they'll take the toilet but the alive it's like living water it's like they can sense that there's something different about the water as it's alive as it's moving as and there's something happening there yeah. that we're not that like we're not aware of and they're mesmerized by it they'll just every time we take a shower they'll just look at the water like they're looking at a psychedelic vision and, and they probably are seeing it yeah. i i hypothesize if we could get in the eyes of cats 
we'd be like, whoa, they can see energy. They can see the energy of other prey, like life forms that are, they see it. They see it in a way that we can't even imagine. Maybe they feel it, but I think they see it. And I think they can see it and feel it in the water itself. And so this to me has really opened my mind to, you know, at least some of the things that that you're talking about, how water is far more than we want to condense it to from this this kind of like microscopic view. What's happening at the atomic level what, that you're witnessing there is clumping. And so when you have stagnant water or water that goes through non-natural flow states, uh, if you put a, a 90 degree bend in a plumbing line, which there's thousands in every single household, all those 90 degree turns break it out of normal flow state and you get clumping of the water molecules. And so coming out of the tap or sitting in a glass of water that you just poured, typically you've got clumps of 75 to 100 water molecules that are clumped together. And they've, they're in an electrical relationship to each other, a biochemical and kind of colloidal structure. When you put it into a natural vortex around a pebble in a stream or swirling in that toilet bowl, as you described, that vortex energy that's there, it breaks that organization of those large clumps and you can get down to levels of 5 12 molecules of water which is now you know far more biologically active can be absorbed through cell membranes much better all of that so we have certainly learned to kill water through every mechanism that we do in municipal water systems and you know hydraulics around all of our our water systems let alone all the things that kill all the living things in the water, some of which is maybe helpful, but most of which over time, the fluoride, the yeah, chlorine, chlorine, the chlorine and herbicides, you know, being yeah. residue of all of it. And so, yeah, it, that loss of life within is definitely losing that, that energetic state of the water. But interestingly, as soon as water passes into a cell, which is, remains one of the most mysterious things in biology, we still don't really know how water gets into a cell because we just have these passive channels called aquaporins in the surface of cells that have no pump mechanism. We have pumps for everything else, sodium, potassium, minerals, insulin. Like We have all kinds of ways to get crap into cells. Water being the most important thing for cellular health, we can't figure out how that thing knows how to passively push through a cell. There's no way to suck it in. But it seems to be related to the electrical potential across the cell membrane. So like a battery, the, the more you insulate between the positive and negative charge, the higher the potential energy there. And so it's by creating this extraordinary charge potential across a very small distance of a cell membrane with perfect uh, resistance through that phospholipid double membrane, you create an enormous electrical charge potential. And it's thought that it's the, the electrical charge potential that's being produced by the mitochondria as it translates light energy from your food back into light energy electrons is creating the electrical opportunity for water to enter the cell. And when it enters, it immediately crystallizes. When you've cut yourself, you've never leaked water out of yourself, which is so weird because you're 70% water. Well, what do you mean? What's blood? Blood is, is not from the cell, right? And so you, okay. you, you'll have blood, which is a liquid state, but it's outside of the cell. Uh -huh. The cells, you, when you cut yourself, you'll disrupt millions, if not billions of, of human cells, skin cells, deep dermis, all of this. No water leaks out. It's just blood, you know. And in fact, in surgery, we're, we're good at, you know, keeping blood flow really tight. We inject with epinephrine, all these little tricks to tense down 
that. So we can do huge surgeries with almost no bleeding. And so you're cutting through massive amounts of tissue. Uh, heart surgery is just so dramatic. And there is no leak. There's no water there because it's not a liquid state. It's actually in this fourth phase of water, which looks like a, a dense jello. And what it is, miraculously, is a crystalline structure of that H2O. And that crystalline structure lines up along the DNA of the strand of the virus or the human DNA that you receive from mom and dad to create an antenna system. And so the vibration of water around the double helix of the completed human DNA creates a vibrational antenna. And now when you hit that with light energy, it vibrates at a very specific frequency. And I believe that what gives you the ability to wake up every day thinking you're Aubrey and not me is not actually a cognitive process is actually a vibrational event where you always know. And if somebody came along and said, your names are not actually Aubrey, your parents lied to you, your name's Phil, that's no problem for you because you can say, all right, I'm actually Phil, but you haven't lost track of who you are at that biological level because you're still the same frequency of resonance. Right. So it's not, it, it doesn't dumb down to, well, that's my name. No, there's an awareness of self. There's a, a coherence of memory of your body that's held at the water structure and its resonance around the DNA strand. And so, so you think this accounts for, I was always thinking like, we were talking earlier because I've gotten an apprentice in body work and you know, energy work where I've been on someone's leg, let's say their left leg, and all of a sudden we're in the dark, I'm doing body work on their left leg in a full trance state and there's something in the fascia in in their you know left quad or their it band area or whatever and i'm manipulating the fashion they burst into tears having a memory a vision of something that they were carrying from their mother let's say right so you're dowsing yeah so this so you're this, dowsing so in the water structure and that's interesting because i was thinking like well so you know of course the body keeps the scores great great book about this but I was thinking like, well, we found neurons in the heart. We found neurons in other places. I was thinking that maybe the memory was stored in neuronal, you know, just distribution through the fascia. But what you're saying is potentially, if the I'm hearing it, it might be the water. water. Memory's all in the water. Whoa. Memory's all in the water. We've never found a, a database in, in the brain or peripheral nervous system that allows for long-term memory. There's no, there's no structure. Uh, we have short-term memory in the hippocampus, which is a tiny little you know, size of an almond in the side of the brain. That's where we do short-term memory processing into long-term memory, but it disappears into this black box of long-term memory. We don't know where the hell that's happening <laughs> in the neurology side. But we know through you know, water structure that water carries memory at the molecular level in an exquisite state. And you know, there's been bizarre abilities now to look at atomic structure to understand vibrational input. Now, there's a TED talk, I think 10 years back or something like that maybe, but uh, that showed how, I think it was a Stanford group, had been able to reproduce a conversation that happened in a, in a room with a bag of chips, an open bag of chips, and they studied the atomic structure shift in the bag of chips to recreate the vibrational input that would have happened to create those you know, before and after events of the atomic structure of the chip bag. 
and then show that that can be then translated back into voice and and what what vibrational vowels had to be spoken to change those that atomic structure that's of a bag that's, that's mind-blowing even to fathom i don't even think i even understand it <laughs> nobody really does the point being vibration affects structure and the memory of water is in this interface between the crystal crystalline structure of the gel state of water in our cells and that electrical vibration from sunlight, from food translation into energy, all of these things. The exciting thing that we are getting at to put this full loop on where, where are we right now in human history is we are right now losing fear and guilt. And it's not everybody. I think there's, like we said, a dichotomous event happening right now. But if you would like to participate in the future of humankind, I would invite everybody <laughs> to start to lose fear and guilt. And to do that, you have to lose judgment. There uh -huh. is no good and evil. There is no right and wrong. Asking a lot here, all Zach. Of these are, all of these are constructs of the human ego. Yep. We gotta let go of the, the judgment to say, what if we are actually light beings showing up right now for the highest vibrational potential? And as we see this dichotomous shift happening, perhaps for the first time in mass on the planet between fear and guilt and the freedom of it, we're creating a new potential for human biology to have a genetics that then will wrap the water in a new state where we start to lose the memory of all the trauma, the emotional BS, the, the denigrating belief systems, and our water itself starts to get stripped of that negative information. And the water structure in the cell of somebody who has freed themselves of fear and guilt, who has cancer, is likely to free themselves of that cancer because they are vibrating at a higher frequency. And so it's very intriguing that by the end of this decade, wouldn't it be interesting if there was at least a large segment of the population that started to be able to hold more light energy in the water structure of the human cell than's ever happened before? It's, I 100% believe that. I can feel it happening. I can th see things happening with people all around me that were impossible five years ago, 10 years ago. And perhaps it's because of the circles that I'm in, but I don't think so because it's the same people that I knew. And all of a sudden, universally, they're coming online, especially in the feminine, where all of a sudden they can get into a trance state and be channeling an energy that's so powerful that it's just, it's undeniable and devastating in its strength. And I say devastating in the most positive way, right? Like just utterly annihilating with how with how potent it is in, in the feminine voice and i've seen this like several several of my dear friends and sisters you know caitlin and deidre both i've known them both for 15 years and i've seen all of the sudden in the last few years just things click on and, and after this you know we're gonna go uh go to my farm and we'll check that out after this podcast and we're gonna go have a sound healing with vilana and i actually this makes me understand things even more because as i've been more in tune with my subtle body and also been deeper in my relationship a sacred relationship with ketamine and cannabis as a way to open myself to the void and bring my body's intelligence there with me and not heavy doses just light doses to open me open me to it i've been able to actually feel they call it sound healing and i always thought like well that's a cool thing it sounds good and there must be a healer there who's doing the healing Right, I always like gave the credit to the energy of the person and the sound sounded cool, but I can actually feel the sound healing me. But I don't, under I don't understand it. I understood it as maybe vibration and whatever, but now thinking about the water in my body, I think it's actually reprogramming and restructuring some of the actual water in my, in my cells. It's, it's a really cool phenomenon is that what, actually what's happening is a remembrance. Yeah. Your water is remembering the original math. <laughs>
And so sound healing works. If you've seen the sound vibration on an effect of a, a pool of water, you know, and see the different sacred geometry that emerges yeah. with different notes. Or with sand on a, on a plate. Sand on a plate. Yeah. You can see this beautiful sacred geometry, which is reflected in the structures of the universe, the way that supernovas occur in the vacuum space. You know, all of these sacred geometries happen all over the place due to vibrational input into the, you know, in this interface between the physical world and the, the quantum world. And so the exciting thing for me is realizing that nobody has ever healed anybody. Health always emerges from within. Mm. And it is a remembrance of your original structure, not some new develop of yeah, a new body. Yeah, yeah. And so- and the sound is a vector of remembrance. Sound is a vector to create the vibrational shape that becomes an antenna. And so that sacred geometry picks up universal information that's beaming down on the planet through gamma ray and all sorts of you know electromagnetic field radiation from the universe. And I believe this is actually how astrology works, is that the stars and their positions, the, the planets and theirs, the, the position of our planet in regard to that massive nuclear event that we call the sun at the moment of our birth is setting our water structure into a very specific vibration. And from that moment forward, we will receive all of the energetic information of the universe to the tune of that ge sacred geometry. Yeah. And so when somebody strikes that A, you know, tuning fork in an orchestra, all of the A strings start to vibrate. And so that's what's happening basically as you start to retune the human water structure through something like sound therapy. You know, superseding plant medicine for me is definitely breath work and sound and and meditation. Absolutely. Like it's just like Absolutely. there's That's nothing. That's I always that recommend compete, right? people start with. Yeah. yeah, and so you're you're going to short circuit your understanding of your own power if you think it's going to come from the plant. The plant's only there to remind you of like this is within you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now go get it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the person that's doing their 200th ayahuasca journey. Maybe that's their calling, but a huge part of me is questioning, are you actually outsourcing your power to a plant that's trying to remind you of your power? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And are you ready for the feminine archetype to rise within you so you no longer need the mother to tell you who you are? Right. You know? And so that's going to be, I think, our next threshold after this plant medicine you know, phase that we're well, in. Well, the plant medicine, I think one of the crucial roles is they show you something incontrovertibly, a gnosis of a state of being that you didn't realize existed. And then from there, there's many ways, many, many ways to get back there. I mean, I'm releasing a documentary. By the time this podcast is out, it'll have been out for, you know, many weeks or a month. I don't know when we'll release this, but I was just in the darkness, you know, just the darkness, just the removal of things. And it was the most powerful transformative experience of my life. And this endogenous DMT phenomenon occurred after day three, which I've been talking to some researchers. Either it was the increase of the uh, endogenous levels of DMT, or it was the removal of the inhibitors of the DMT, the MAOI of effectively aspects. So whatever happened, I was having full visionary state for three days in this in this dark state. And this is a very old technology as well so there's so many ways yeah to go about this and to say you know looking at it every everything has its sacred role but i think this revolution in psychedelics is about okay now do y'all feel it y'all feel it good like just like craig balcom when i was doing my first experience with chi like you feel it okay don't forget now you know that's right you know <laughs> like that's, that's the, right that's the beauty of it so we're working on that application now of like, okay, so if we know all this about water structure, we know that the genetics of the virome are helping push us towards adaptation for biodiversification of consciousness and biologic existence. 
how do we start structuring lifestyles around this? And so my clinic's been working for 10 years to really figure out what are those basic inputs of lifestyle that shape that biologic potential of the cell to hold water ultimately at a higher vibration of light and to hold move us towards that fourth density state. And so we've got this eight-week program that's so beautiful because the work is actually done by the person themselves looking into the eyes of a coach. And so it's the one-on-one coaching that's just there as this perfect mirror. And so as the biology gets closer and closer to its potential, the healing never comes from the biology. The always happens at that spiritual awareness level and then the breakthroughs happen and yeah. people stop doing the job that's been sucking their life out of them they start the company they've always wanted to start they get out of the abusive relationship they've been in 30 years they finally draw healthy boundaries with their children not because anything in in the eight step program is is changing the way that you know their biology works and therefore things, things happen their biology work their light charge just slightly brighter for a moment and the amount of clarity that they had in that moment was just a, a different body. Yeah. And you see this ecstatic state of sensory experience start into it. And so with you in the dark, there must have been many times where you were in such a high vibrational s- system of energy through your body mm-hmm. that you weren't sure you were going to survive, I'm guessing. I don't know. It was intense. Yeah. It was fucking intense. Yeah. And so you were literally being challenged to hold cellular structure together in the state of an atomic energy transition through your complete new vibration because you had been eliminated of senses for that long and so you were reaching this vibrational state of of capacity that was leading to inevitable detox of emotions chemicals you know genetics and you emerged different and you see that in indigenous histories, right? There's indigenous stories of, you know, you go into this cave and you stay there for two weeks and you come out and your cataracts are gone, your teeth are new, like just yeah. trippy stuff. The, heal, the healing, was, the healing was enormous. And, and there's a quote from Kabir, which I love, is and he's saying, all darkness disappears when you light the lamp in your heart, you know, and that's really it. Like we're understanding the, the heart energy, and like this beautiful heart energy that we have. So we're we're coming to a we're coming to a close here, and I want to take one little one little journey before we get to I think the end where I'd like to talk about just a message to what people can do who've been inspired by this and who want to live in a different way. But first, I want to just take a quick detour into the virus again, <clears throat> because we're in this state in which virus is you know enemy number one, and there's the unclean and the clean, and, and we'll get into this with Charles Eisenstein, and he goes deep into this philosophy, so we won't go down that rabbit hole of what it's how it's been presented from a socio-political level. But when Vilana got COVID, she got it early, and you know like real early, like January, right? And and she's she didn't test for it then, but very confident based on symptoms and everything that that's what it was and has been exposed multiple times hasn't gotten it hasn't gotten it since and so it would seem that the forbidden natural immunity which has been blocked as a hashtag from instagram (laughs) has actually occurred miraculously somehow natural (laughs) immunity has occurred but she said right from the drop and she's an highly intuitive person she's like this was an upgrade i knew it i knew it from the moment it happened i knew it as an upgrade and this is something that you're saying about these these viruses but then you're going to have the counter opinion saying well sometimes this upgrade fucking kills you you know like sometimes the upgrade is too much so what is what is your take because it's hard to say that it's always an upgrade when at certain points it is going to cause death 
in certain people. I would say death is the biggest upgrade we can have. <laughs> <laughs> there is no greater upgrade. <laughs> it is uh, catastrophically, explosively expansive is death. And so it is such a violent rebirth and it happens in millions of seconds. And so when we uh, you know, resuscitate people in the ICU, they so consistently come back with trippy stories of what happened in that eight minutes that they were dead, you know? And uh, the multi-galactic journeys they take, the people they see on the other side with such clarity, physical states of being that they, you know, now come back knowing exist. You know, it's just unbelievable expansion. And so is it really a failure of human biology when we choose to put 7.8 or maybe ultimately 9 billion people on a single planet to accelerate the transmission of, of soul energy through a small, small space in a tiny little solar system in a you know, relatively small galaxy in the middle of a massive universe, what could be the purpose? And you know, some of the premises that have been suggested out there in the astrologic space that I find really fascinating in astrophysics is that the universe may actually have, and of course, once you start to think about it, it would have to have chakra points just like our human bodies would. Mm -hmm. And so it is likely, I believe, that our galaxy in this far-flung little corner of a small galaxy is only important because it sits in a chakra center. And when I look at the you know, descriptions of you know, extraterrestrial intelligence or channels or all these words that are thrown around out there or my own experience of meditation of getting picking up vibrations of non, non-human <laughs> vibrations or sounds or languages whatever they are when you're hearing stuff that's cosmic whatever form it is and i come back into the human state if we have a chakra i'm wondering if it's the heart chakra of the universe mm. is the uniqueness of the human experience where we're able to cycle through love and despair so quickly indicative that we sit at the very epicenter of some sort of energetic state within the universe and therefore the plight of humankind is so in interest to all of the universe because if we manage to stabilize this chakra center does it change everything in the universe and is that why perhaps vibrational spiritual angelic extraterrestrial whatever words you can come up with is it possible that all of history's you know myths that we've come to call religion or realities that we call religion doesn't matter your perspective on it is it possible those stories are real because we are this important not because homo sapiens are important but because this chakra center could change the way that the Earth, vibration Earth's of the entire heart, universe happens. Yourself. <laughs> and so it's a very provocative image for me that gives me this sense of again no judgment is death a bad thing? No, we, we got to lose that construct. There's no way death is a bad thing. That, that's and simultaneously leaving space for the deep grief and the deep compassion for those that it is hard to lose. It's hard to lose this, this form, this relationship, the ability to touch and feel someone in the flesh. You know, like I miss, I miss giving my uncle a hug and, and going to going to, you know, play tennis with him. I miss, I miss that, you know, but he's not gone. I miss, my mentor don howard you know i miss my grandma i miss i miss hugging them i miss sitting around and telling stories and talking to them there but i've connected to all of them in in other ways which is also beautiful but nonetheless like the grief needs to be wailed it needs to be it it, it begs to be cried and expressed and felt and it's this is not a spiritual bypass of what's here in the 3d yes fuck yes like 
Like feel it, like feel it. It is part of our human experience to feel it and also be able to zoom out and look at it from that other perspective. And it's possible that grief itself is a good example of something that can be done spiritually pure. That is a manifestation of reverence and a sense of the sovereignty of that individual and their influence on the nature and humans around them, the relationships. And I think it's been usurped because of Western medicine's influence on the belief of death and the contract, the special contract that we've come to believe in is that life is short and we have to agree on death and all this stuff. Uh, You know, like this this special relationship of marriage has been applied to life itself now, right? And so we've come up with this very short thing. So grief now is intertwined with the genetics and expressions of guilt and fear. That's not a clean grief. Yeah, Martin yeah. Prechtel is in his book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, talks about the indigenous understanding of grief, about it is an absolute celebration. It's declaring to God, the earth, the cosmos, how much you loved that person. And it's an expression of love, an expression of reverence. And it should be wailed, and the songs should be sung, and the tears should be shed, and, the wa- and, they, and he recommends going to the waters, to the waters themselves, and like like emerging immersing yourself in the waters in your grief and allowing the waters to carry the memory and and remind yourself of that person and there's like this beautiful understanding which has been and he talks about some fucking archbishop of canterbury who like squashed the grief practices and the wailing practices and say this is not god blah 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 you can see the extension of the bastardization of grief as a pure expression like we're talking about and how this is also another aspect of of this more beautiful world. Our hearts know it's possible, as Charles says, like re-bringing this back, but in a different way, you know, and just really recognizing this is sacred too. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I, I think that that's perhaps why we would sign up for human life. You know, yeah. If these are eternal souls, uh, why the hell would something in singularity with the universe pick a a dark planet with a dark you know human experience that has forgotten its connection to everything why would you pick that and i think the answer is because the experience of temporal reality is kind of freaking cool yeah you don't have temporal relationships when you're in singularity when you're in the quantum phase everything's connected everything's infinite nothing's destroyed everything's cycling everything's yin yang everything's light dark balanced always you would sign up for this journey so that you could perhaps sit in the sunshine on a day with your feet up and watch the sun tilt through the fine hairs on your lover's head and marvel at the way that that creates this halo around their head. And you would wonder about the steam rising from that cup of tea and ponder those seconds as they go by and feel the energy between the moments you can't get that in singularity you can't (laughs) access that because there's no time yeah and so it's this like breath hold moment of just like it's so beautiful to watch a sunset because you know that sun's going to drop under that rise in just a couple seconds and the display of light is so mind-boggling i love this description you had of that costa rican sunset or tulum Mm. maybe it was where it's like a goddess shows up, you know? And so you've just got this temporal moment where there's an expression of the the universe. The sky is pink and rich, and it's like a carpet of 
energy is laid out that's being displayed in colors but if you listen a little bit deeper you can hear the sound of the sunset and you can smell the sunset and you can feel the sunset on your skin and it's not just an experience with the eyes it's an experience with the entirety of the self and if you're really there for that moment then the existential question of why am i here you don't ask that fucking question anymore you know like aha yes i'm here to witness the beauty that's it that's why we're here that's it. We're here to witness the beauty in temporal bodies with minds that cannot comprehend the singularity because we wanted to let go of that for a moment so that we could be immersed in the belief of temporal yeah. and the belief of the finite. We're in an infinite game. We're playing a finite moment within it as particle beings, as expressions of light energy. And in that particle state, we disappear every millionth of a second and reappear. And so we are these vibrational particle events that we call human bodies. Within that is a extraordinary water system in a crystalline state that is picking up the energy of the universe to express a new vibration. And I think that's why we're all here right now. Yeah. Well, let's finish as we did in the last podcast, which was a beautiful moment. Let's just take a few minutes to talk to people directly and just give them a transmission of whatever wants to, whatever wants to come through. And um, I'm actually going to go... Uh, use the restroom real quick so i'm not my meditative practice is not so strong that i can overcome the strong desire to pee <laughs> so we're gonna i'm gonna go do that and then we'll take uh we'll take a few moments to uh to speak to people love it let's begin There's a soul seed within us that has all the genetic and water intelligence memory of the universe within us. The seed has the entire story, has the entire remembrance of the path. The future that sits before us is already known within the seed. Keeping this seed from sprouting is perhaps a sense of scarcity around the concept of love. It's desiccated the seed. We fear that there's not enough love for ourselves or for those around us. We've become afraid that perhaps the fabric of everything is love and yet we look around at the struggles of love in human experience and relationship and relationship to planet. But if we dig deeper than the emotion that might be described as love or the physical vibration of it, there's a deeper truth within the universe that the quantum state, the physics of everything, the fabric of everything is not love, it's actually beauty. When you start to consider the possibility that there is no end to beauty, when you start to really steep in the abundance of beauty within the sunset, within the smell of the food that you are about to consume with the loved ones that sit around a table with you, the new friends that sit at that table to give you new enrichment of thought, genetic input, vibrational input, 
step away from your clinging to love. Let go of that, open your hands, and welcome in the observation of beauty. Your entire neurologic system has been tuned to give an extraordinary capacity for appreciating the beauty of the universe. The Milky Way at night. The solar eclipse. The vibration of the ocean as it pounds on a beach. All of your senses are tuned to be an observer of the beauty of the universe. And when you shut down the human psyche and become an observer of beauty, you will immediately experience an overflow of a much truer vibration of love than you've perhaps ever had. And you will realize that love has no end to it because it is not a thing. It is an experience. It is an experience of witnessing beauty. And if we are at the heart chakra of the universe, then let us fall in love with the entire matrix of the universe through seeing all of its beauty. Turn to the person next to you tonight and perhaps without words, stare into their eyes and start to be witness to the beauty. Each iris is like a supernova of intelligence and coloration, a star field within that pupil. Look into each other's eyes with your parent, your grandparent, the bedside of a hospital bed. Look into the eyes of another human being. See the freaking beauty there. Be overwhelmed by the miracle of vital life, the expression of a soul through a biological veil. Be in awe of the vibrations you can feel off of the skin of that person as you hold their hand. The crepe paper texture of the soft skin of your elder as they lay in bed. The texture of a child's fingers in your hand as you walk by their side. Be in awe. We're here on purpose. We are enough. The journey is okay. We can be free of judgment of our own shortcomings, acknowledge our nascent state, let go of fear and guilt, make space for new vibrational density, look to your food, your water, your company, your social networks, your communities, for opportunities for new connection, reconnection, hyper-intelligence through our proximity to one another. Everything can shift. I'm so grateful to be witness to all of you, this energetic space. So empowered by your presence in my life. I have come to find myself to be beautiful this year. It's all I desire for you. She would see your own beauty. You are a sacred being.
the spirit of Father declared, Behold, I make all things new. When we see through the eyes of beauty, the true sight, we see the beauty in all things, those things we judge, the people we denigrate, the situations that occur that may cause pain and suffering. They are real, yes, but through the eyes of beauty we can see them in a new way. And in seeing them in a new way they transform. The things themselves transform. We understand the inherent beauty as the substrate of all life, the infinite cycle of death and rebirth of constant transformation. We see the beauty of a single moment, this moment, right now. As you listen to these words, if this moment is all there is, if this is all you ever have, take a deep breath. Breathe it in. Life, beauty, truth, love. It's always all around you. May the fog of delusion, conditioning, the judgments, the preferences, may they all just relax, softening their edges, opening the veil so you can see through to the real truth. The real truth. Wow. 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 We are here. We are here. We are here. And that's enough. That's always enough. I love you as I love myself because we are the same. Different and the same as with all life. Thank you for saying yes as you, as your God self, as the divine word that spoke into creation, the great Om, the one tone, the one tone said yes. Thank you. Thank you for saying yes. Through all the pain, through all the joy, it's all the emanation of the word, yes. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. See all your beauty today, brother. <laughs> Likewise, brother. I love you. I love you too, man. I love you too. That's a lot to behold, all this beauty. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of beauty. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, ultimately, <laughs> when I when I took my blindfold off in the at the end of that darkness, and I was overwhelmed with this emotion, and I was looking out at a, another sunset, and that was the feeling. It was like it's so fucking beautiful. It's so beautiful, and we may not always see it, but it's always there. And when we do, it can be overwhelming, but that's what we live for. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Zach. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We love you. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you're interested in any of the Fit for Service programming, make sure you check out fitforservice.com. I love you all, and I'll see you next week.